From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me today are Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, and Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI. On today's episode, Patrick and I sat down with Alejandro Oyarse Barnett, Chief Technology Officer and Co-Founder at Highstar. Highstar is a technology-focused company specializing in PEM electrolyzers for hydrogen production using renewable energy. The company got its start as a spin-off from Sintef, one of Europe's largest independent research organizations, and has raised private funding so the company can focus on production of its high-efficiency PEM units and keep pace with demand for hydrogen generation capacity. Alejandro joined us to discuss in more detail the origins of Highstar, its core technology, and the mission at the core of the company. But before we get into it, we'd just like to ask that if you enjoy the show and follow us here at EAH, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, guys, season four, episode two. I wasn't able to join for episode one, so this is my first time starting an episode off with Alicia here, so... We're going to go ahead and say, Alicia, how are you doing? What's going on in your world? All is good. I just finished, I think, about seven weeks of travel, um, and I'm home for a bit, so I'm feeling a little sane now, which is nice, and and a unique feeling. (laughs) But it's been really exciting times. Good. Chris, how about yourself? You've got a, a seasonal beard going on? Yeah, I don't know why everyone gets so animated about beards, but anyway, yes, it's I have a good looking beard, a... man. Take the compliment. I'm glad that you like the beard. No, I um, I haven't been doing anything as glamorous as uh, traveling to COP and all the other things Alicia's done, but uh, I'm not the rock star Alicia is. So um, I, I think the most glamorous I managed was Frankfurt. So I went for um, a one day conference there. Otherwise, it's been uh, very UK centric. Um, and, and weirdly, Andrew, I don't know how you feel about it, but uh, I, I had uh, the first five-month period since I started Protein where I didn't have to focus on fundraising. And that's been a bit of a culture shock to spend <laughs> five months focusing on the company itself and like, okay, like, how are we doing? How's everyone doing? What's going on? So that's been quite nice. Sadly, coming to a, a very quick end. So we'll be starting again uh, in the new year, but it um, has been fun while it's lasted. What about you, sir? Can't complain. I, I feel like you and Patrick basically had your early Christmas when the IRA came out, right? I need to stop calling it that, the IRA. Can they just can they just name it something better? Can we call it IRA? Yeah, okay, thank you, IRA. For, for no reason whatsoever <laughs> that anybody should ask any questions about, but yeah. No, sorry, go ahead. Completely agreed. So no, but basically, I mean, since the IRA came out, it must be a combination of your Christmases and your hells coming together at the same time for you two, right? I think that is possibly the most succinct and accurate uh, summation of the last number of months, which is, which is, yeah, I, I think that's about right. And, and <laughs> let's see what the new year holds. Hooray. I, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to echo what uh, what Patrick said there. You know, it's a it's a gift that comes with a lot more work. So you know, is that it's like winning a pie eating contest where the uh, the prize is more pie, that kind of thing. <laughs> Any event, guys, good to hear everybody's doing well. Uh, Patrick, you and I had a chance to sit down with uh, Alejandro over at uh, at High Star. You want to give a, a quick 15 second intro here on what High Star does, and then we'll jump into that interview. 
Yeah, so so Alejandro is uh, the the CTO for Highstar. Highstar are a uh, PEM uh, electrolyzer manufacturer. They got a, a few different uh, operational streams, but the the whole name of the game here is a new system that's that's kind of spun out with uh, kind of greater and improved efficiencies. And uh, we're really looking forward to hearing the uh, the nitty gritty with a CTO who can tell us a little bit about how they're going about making uh, PEM systems operate uh, more effectively, more efficiently and under different kind of constraints and conditions. So looking forward to it. Perfect. Well, we'll jump right into it and let uh, you talk everything technical way over my head. Alejandro, thank you so much for joining us, making us making the time uh, all the way from Oslo this morning to join us. Uh, if you wouldn't mind just jumping and telling us a little bit about yourself uh, and also how it came to be that you're at High Star and, and the origins of High Star. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, my name is Alejandro Burnett, the CTO's Chief Technology Officer and one of the co-founders of High Star. I can also say I'm one of the co-inventors of the Highstar patented technology. So I'm really, really proud of that. I'm a former senior researcher at uh, Sintef, which is one of the largest research, independent research institutes in Scandinavia. I worked there for about eight years and worked on a variety of research and development projects uh, throughout my years at, at uh, Sintef. Uh, worked with fuel cells and different electrolysis technologies. So, and we got, and I got a lot of inspiration from that work, what later became uh, the Heister technology. Um, I'm a Swedish national, but my name says otherwise. I'm, my parents are from Chile, South America, so we moved to Sweden when I, at a very young age. But, uh, yes, uh, when it comes to the origins of, of, of High Star, uh, this, in Sintef, this is where we came up with this new way of uh, operating electrolyzers. And that's the basis of the, of the patented technology of, of High Star. The company was found in the September 2020. I didn't start working at Highstar until early 2021. So we haven't been around for, for that long, but we have been able to accomplish uh, a lot of things during this short period of time. Uh, we managed to uh, secure uh, 60 million Norwegian crowns when we got out of Sintef in the first round uh, with our main investors, uh, which are Sintef Venture. Uh, so Sintef came along uh, for, the, for the ride. And then we have AP Ventures, uh, a London-based uh, uh, fund, uh, investor fund, and then Firda, which is a local in investor fund. So this was the, the 60 million Norwegian crowns that we started with. But also uh, the team at, at Highstore, the initial team, especially two of the three co-founders, were really good at writing uh, proposals, research proposals and, and applications. So we were able to match the 60 million Norwegian crowns with uh, an additional 60 million co-funding from the Norwegian Research Council, uh, uh, ANOVA, and, and other venues. Uh, during 2022, we've been focusing on developing our first megawatt-sized uh, electrolyzer platform, 
and we've been uh, setting up our manufacturing facilities here in, in Oslo. And by the end of this year, we will be around 30 people. Yeah, and that's a perfect that's a perfect introduction, and that gives the background and the history of the company. And congratulations on the funding. By the way, we've had AP Ventures on the on the show before, so uh, it's delight delighted to have a portfolio company with us as well. So, you guys, High Star, as we understand, is an it's an electrolyzer company, and you guys are focused on PAM electrolyzers. So that means that efficiency is going to be a key challenge. And how, how is your, how is Highstar different? How are they approaching the efficiency challenge in the PEM electrolyzer t- technology? That's a very good question and, and happy to answer it because our patented technology specifically addresses efficiency improvements in PEM electrolyzers. Uh, what we say that we have three uniques uh, within our uh, technology the first one is that we have the most efficient PEM electrolyzer stack on the market. It's at least 10% more efficient than the competitors. And this is because it is within the patent, but we are able to operate the electrolyzer so that we can utilize uh, thinner membranes. And this is uh, makes these electrolyzers really, really, really efficient. At the same time, which is also included in the patent, we have uh, a very safe electrolyzer technology. We say that we have the, the safest electrolyzer and uh, it includes operating with air on one of these electrodes and addresses and it you know, fixes the issues that all the electrolyzer technologies are facing, which is hydrogen crossover from the cathode side to the anode side. And, and our patent um, addresses that issue. So both on the efficiency side and the safety side. And the third thing is the, which is also very unique, is uh, we have designed our electrolyzer uh, using a lot of fuel cell design principles. That means that our components are being manufactured by high volume manufacturing fuel cell facilities, so roll to roll. MEAs and so on, and our stacks can be assembled by by similar um, mass manufacturing technologies that that are coming from from this fuel cell world. So we are really really proud of, of these three uniques. So so maybe moving moving into the kind of the process of development a little bit, you know, that that kind of innovation, that that higher efficiency that kind of uh, solution solving kind of pathway that you've kind of just described, what are the major challenges in, in developing that kind of higher performing system? Like, like how did you, how did you go about it? And what did you need to kind of consider when you were setting up the, the company and, and trying to move what, you know, was a, you know, a patent and a kind of probably a pilot scale all the way up to commercial kind of manufacturing? Yes. Um, I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit about the early days of the high star technology because this was a lot of work was done in in Synthef. But I can first address uh, what the major challenges are right now setting up high star and the company. And I can think of two that are really difficult. It's it's a little bit out of our control. One is the supply chain. So. During COVID or right after COVID, 
this is when we established a high star. And now with the Ukraine crisis, uh, things takes longer than you would want to have it. I, I would like to have everything, all the components, all the materials, all the equipment, the machines, everything that's needed in order to, to you know, develop the technology much faster. And, and, and the supply chain, although they are doing some great work and you can see that these suppliers are really trying to ramp up and trying to fulfill the demand out there there's still challenges uh, on that and that slows the pace down and i'm not quite happy with it i, I wish it would be much faster and the, and the second thing that i i can think of is it, it also has to do with time uh, and especially in the electrolysis world when you want to introduce innovation into your products materials concepts and so on so you, you have to think that uh, uh, the lifetime of an, of an electrolyzer is 50 60 thousand hours so when you want to try something it takes a long long time in order to validate uh, these new concepts there's no standardized uh, accelerated stress tests and methods and so on so this is really something that uh, research community university institutes should uh, work more on uh, and in the meantime of course Heister is doing its best to develop our own uh, processes qualification methods and so on and and to that end i think uh, you know alejandro you said we might want to talk a little bit about take a step back and talk about the early days of, of development and sort of the challenges that you guys encountered and to the extent that you can, and maybe that's something you guys don't want to talk about too much because it's proprietary, but if there's a certain amount of that, those early days when you guys were developing the technology that Highstar now utilizes, what that process looked like, were there, assuming there were challenges then to innovate and make such an efficient uh, electrolyzer technology, but could you maybe tell us a little bit about that process as well? Yeah, I mean, so although the company is just, is, uh, just a few years old, Magnus Thomasson, which is one of the other co-founders, and I, we worked at Synthe for many, many years. And we started to working on the technology all the way back in 2016 and uh, at Synthef. And Synthef really allowed us uh, and provided an environment that gave us uh, finances in order to carry out the research, the early stage low TRL research. And at, at the same time, it helped us during the patenting process to secure IP and so on. So really without Synthef and that those three, four years that we were trying things and trying to validate the, the, the concepts, it really, uh, it was really good. I personally look back at uh, my time at Synthef uh, and really put me in a position to succeed uh, as a researcher, but now as a, as a CTO of, of, of Highstar. Taking that uh, to where you guys are today, Highstar currently has uh, three systems, as we understand it, Vega, Mira, and Orion. Could you tell us a bit about how those systems differ from each other and what makes them different product lines, as it were? Yes, yeah, so uh, we have uh, three uh, products that uh, really addresses uh, different applications. So the Vega is a, is a very efficient system that can decrease the energy consumption of an electrolyzer plant by 10% or more. 
And this is, of course, there are um, applications where the electricity cost uh, might be very high, grid-connected applications uh, in certain areas. Uh, and then the operational cost of, the of these electrolyzer systems are very high. You want to reduce the energy consumption, and therefore we have this special uh, product, the Vega, that is a containerized solution ranging from 1 to 4 megawatts and can produce between 20 and 80 kilograms per hour uh, with an excellent efficiency of 50 kilowatt hours per, per kilogram. And then we have the meter, and this is the high output system, high current densities, at least more than 100% higher hydrogen production rates than uh, in comparison to other electrolyzer technologies. Uh, potentially can provide a, a, a a low capex for for the electrolyzer, but we are um, having products in the range of one to six megawatt, also a containerized solution with a capacity between 30 and 110 kilograms per hour. A really good efficiency as well in comparison to other electrolysis technologies, around 54 kilowatt hours per kilogram, uh, but it is really high output hydrogen generation. And then the Orion, this is something we are still uh, working on, but these are non-containerized uh, solutions. We are developing a module, which will be around 2 megawatts module, that uh, we could provide to customers that want to have you know, l larger plants, 20 megawatts and above. So maybe maybe following on a little bit, given given the three different kind of um, kind of product line offerings, you you uh, thinking of it in the operational sense, what what does each kind of offer a specific user class, or or you know how how, are, how do you envisage them being deployed? Is it is it kind of stackable, sizable, rampable, or is it, um, it do you have a specific kind of operator kind of scale in mind when you when you when you think of these lines? Uh, yes, a little bit of what I was mentioned, right? Uh, so um, these more efficient systems are uh, high electricity prices applications and con more continuous operation. And typically, um, I don't know, just for an example, um, green ammonia production in Norway, where electricity might be um, expensive, but it is a constant uh, power, uh, the system is connected to the grid. Now, for more, uh, for applications where you have a lot of renewables, a lot of wind going up and down, more, more dynamic systems where the electricity might be at times very cheap and you want to produce as much hydrogen as possible, and then you would like to go to the to the mirror systems. Um, uh, Difficult to say the, the specific applications, but, um, you know, offshore wind from, um, I don't know, Chile. <laughs> and you would like to have such high th throughput output systems. Is that, uh, Alejandro, is that because the Mira system, a system like the Mira one can ramp up and down very quickly? Or is that uh, related to the efficiency or both? It's, it's related to how much hydrogen you can produce uh, per uh, unit time. The dynamics of PEM electrolysis are, um, it's well known that it's, it's a very dynamic um, technology, uh, more dynamic than other electrolyzer technologies. But in this particular case, it would be uh, the same for both. 
for both the vega and the mira. That's why I should leave the technical questions to Patrick. It seems like that evidently was an obvious one. Sorry, Patrick, I stepped on your toes there. No, no, no. I think uh, <laughs> I think we covered it well. So um, I, I, I suppose move, moving it moving it forward to the next bit. Inevitably, you know, as as you say, you know, the company has been been in operation for a good a couple of years, a few years, and and a lot of work before that. And you mentioned at the, the beginning, I think it was the, the was it six million crowns or sixteen million crowns? I forget. Six. But um, six, right? It's good to get the number right. Sixty, even better. That's a far far stronger start. Maybe maybe can you talk to us about that kind of um, kind of financing kind of uh, kind of setup and 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 how your success to date um, and and kind of your future financing aspirations kind of are lining up together. I presume 60, 60 million crowns was only the beginning. So, so what's next, perhaps? Yes, I think. Let me just uh, state, or well, let's just agree that the world is undergoing a huge energy transition. So that's what's happening now, where renewables and electrification is critical to achieve emission targets around the world. And also that there's already consensus. There are some areas or industries, let's say steel, fertilizer, chemicals, heavy-duty transport, which are applications that might be very difficult to electrify fully. You You need something else. You need a new energy vector into the energy matrix uh, around the world and 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 people have realized this now and that's why hydrogen becomes uh, such an important part of the energy transition Uh, it is consensus on it right now so we know the demand for hydrogen will be massive and we already see the market is growing and maturing very rapidly. So for us, our main goal uh, of Heister is to become the undisputed technology leader when it comes to PAM electrolysis and and to take considerable share of that future market that's coming out. And that market, yeah, then you have to start looking at reports and projections and so on. But it's, it is potentially a huge, huge market. We are talking about, you know, 800 gigawatts of electrolyzers by 2030. And, you know, several thousands, up to 3,500 3, gigawatts by 2050. And there are numbers, we can discuss this number, but the market for high, green hydrogen will be huge. Uh, so I can't go in into specifically uh, the f- future financing, but we are uh, closing a Series B as now as we speak, and this will put Highstore in a in a very good position to deliver our fully commercial projects in the years to come. Uh, let's say two, three years and so on. And then we have to take a look when we have to really start ramping up uh, production at the gigawatt scale uh, towards 2025 and so on. I, I, would, I would think that it would, there would be a new uh, financing round at that point. As counsel for a company here in, in the U.S. Uh, in the hydrogen space, uh, Alejandro, I'm 
very familiar with the sensitivities around <laughs> around financing details. You're about to close, and you're and you're closing, and you know you don't want to say or do anything that could jeopardize uh, the, the signatures. Totally, totally get it. But 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 we are very in a very good position. That's what I can say. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, congratulations to you guys. Uh, that's that's great. Uh, and Patrick, it looks like you just turned your microphone off. I was going to ask a, a, a wrap up question here, but if you want to, if you have a follow up, I'll let you let you do that. I, I have one. I have one that uh, that is something that is a commonly asked question in every conference that I go to to pen pen manufacturers. So, so Alejandro, we should give you the opportunity to speak to it too, if you'd like. Which is, you know. What, what about the, the material availability, the material supply chain? I know you spoke to com, kind of supply chain and kind of component challenges in general, but, you know, is that something that, that you're, you're working on very heavily right now, or is it something that you're concerned for for the future? Just, just as a, it's a general market question rather than a, a specific one necessarily for you guys, unless you'd like to get into the, the technology strand on that. Well, I'm the chief technology officer, so I have to go into the specifics. So I, I can give you my take That's on That's what it. I was hoping you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can give you my take. So for people that knows electrolysis in general and knows a little bit about PEM electrolysis, they will know that uh, in particular... PEM electrolysis uses uh, precious metals in order to carry out these uh, electrochemical reactions. And in particular PEM, that's why it is so efficient. It, it because it uses uh, metals like iridium and platinum and so on. And of course, there's a certain limitations to how much iridium there is in the world uh, and what is being um, uh, produced every year. The first thing, we have a competitive advantage at, in Heister because this electrolysis is so efficient, especially these Mira products. We can take them out to, to, to up to very high currents or high hydrogen production rates. So we need less cells, less materials than other electrolyzers in order to produce the same unit of hydrogen. Uh, so that's number one. We, we already have uh, our electrolysis uses much less precious metals there on, than our competitors. We actually are on target to achieve 2024 targets for usage of, of PGMs. The second thing is that there are a lot of materials um, from both companies and uh, at a research stage that is pointing us in the direction or saying that, yes, it will be possible to reduce the iridium loadings and platinum loadings at least uh, 50, 100% from current uh, loadings. Uh, so there's new materials, new catalysts coming out, more efficient, more durable, that will allow us to decrease uh, uh, this material usage even more. And that's coming up in the next three, four years. And finally, the other thing is that when you have reusage, recycling strategies for your electrolysis, and you can reuse your materials, that's uh, what will really open the door for PEM electrolysis, because you can utilize up to 90 or more than 90% of your precious metals if you have a recycling strategy. So in that case, uh, I think PEM electrolysis has a really bright future 
But with that being said, I believe that in order to achieve these targets that are set globally and those thousands of gigawatts of capacity towards 2050, there is no one electrolyzer technology that will win over the other. All these electrolyzer technologies, alkaline and PEM and AEM, they will all be needed in order to achieve the global targets. And Alejandro, you've been incredibly generous with your time today. So wanted to just have uh, one last question for you, if you have a moment to answer it, which is uh, probably one you get a lot. What does the future of High Star look like? Um, where are you guys? Sounds like you guys are, as we know, close to uh, securing some more funding. And again, congratulations there. But what is? Where's the? What are the next steps? Is it, it scaling manufacturing, new markets, all of the above? Uh, where are you guys headed? Yeah, I, I think I mentioned that a little bit already. It's we do want to become undisputed technology leaders. That's where we're heading, and that means being able to produced and delivered gigawatts uh, gigawatts of electrolyzers every year. So uh, speed to market uh, and pace of ramp up is something that we have to focus on in the upcoming years now. Next year, we will deliver our first uh, megawatt uh, systems to Equinud. We have a project together with them, Equinud and Yara and Gasco. Um, And we are ramping up or setting up our manufacturing facilities. So those are the things that are really important for us and we are open for business and we want to have orders and we want to be able to deliver them uh, as soon as possible. Fantastic. Well, Alejandro, again, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it and uh, excited to see what High Star does into the future. Really, really great stuff. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Andrew, Patrick. It was a real pleasure. Okay, guys. Well, Patrick, as I mentioned at the top, uh, you guys talked way over my head on the technical part. So, Alicia, what uh, what stood out to you on the in the High Star interview with Alejandro? I thought it was interesting um, to hear sort of validation for what I think is really necessary, and that's sort of government academic support for research and for research that can then be spun off and commercialized. So they came from Sintef. And, um, you know, it doesn't have a huge amount of government funding now because they actually reinvest the royalties from whatever they've invented and and received lessons fees on back into a fund that then goes into these commercial efforts. And I think if you look at the U.S., I mean, most of the interesting IP we've developed has come from, you know, DOE or or, uh, DOD or or just generally um, this sort of um, basic research uh, seems to fall on, on, on the government. And if you skip it, uh, you don't get a whole lot of innovation. You end up with a lot of iterations and maybe some incremental changes, but not so much dramatically out-of-the-box innovation. 
So I thought this was actually a good example of a working system like that. And I hope to see more of that around the world. Um, of course, it does exist in a lot of places, but I think it's a really important part of the sort of innovation circle. I also uh, managed to figure out how much fundraising he actually did, <laughs> since it was very confusing whether it was six or 16 or 60 million Norwegian krona. Uh, and um, it is actually 60, which is the same as 6 million US dollars. So hilariously, it were actually everyone was right. Um, it, was, it was 6 million US. <laughs> and then I guess he, was, he managed also to get grants to, to back that, which is again supporting what I'm saying about some um, government dollars um, being sometimes very important. I, I did have some questions though about how long he would think that this advantage of 10% more efficiency is going to last, given that I don't think PEM is the last type of electrolyzer we're going to see. There have been other companies that have developed even more innovative or more um, efficient sort of products. And I'm just curious uh, from you guys as well, like, how do they stay ahead with this if, if this IP is their really distinguishing feature? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I'm going to pass that question off to Patrick here and say, what do you think about that, Patrick? I know we had we touched on that around whether the the efficiencies in the PEM world. I, I think I think at least you raise a a really really strong point, which is, you know, given what we're expecting across the technology spectrum for every electrolyzer we we have operationally kind of available today. The learning rates that are, are left to, to be observed is still pretty substantial. So, like, I would imagine we're we're talking about a, a step on that ladder. So, you know, maybe this is this is something we we're going to have to go back to when when Highstar have uh, scaled and grown a, a bit more and developed and deployed a bit more as to what's next. Because um, I think this is a question that every electrolyzer manufacturer in the in the world is now grappling with. Is well, how do we improve that that kind of current density, or how do we um, kind of just operationally make the the process more efficient, or reduce the you know the catalytic loading and stuff like that, right? So th- these are all all things on the table. And there's oh, to your point, there's so much innovation, so much work going on in the in in the various laboratories at universities and national laboratories all over the world. You can't help but feel the future is bright for for kind of even more gains and opportunities for even even more improved efficiency. But fundamentally, fair question, right? How long does that 10% keep you ahead? This is one we're going to have to go back to Alejandro on, or or if any electrolyzer manufacturers of any sort out there in the world would like to uh, tell us how they're uh, planning on improving their tech and getting ahead, we'd love to hear from you. I don't know if this is a. I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you touch on that, Chris. I'm going to let you get your answer, and I promise you, <laughs> I'm not cutting you off just yet. But I also think if you could address, I think how important in your mind are these kinds of federal projects for technological progress you know, in terms of, I mean, how important is that going to be in the coming years for the hydrogen space? As usual, Andrew, lots lots of questions in uh, in one, but I suppose that's what I normally do to the listeners, so I deserve it on the other side. I like to do the compound. I'm going to try to get ahead of you. I know you're going to answer a compound question, so I might as well ask that compound question. Okay, so lots to unpack. Let's try unpacking a few bits. Um, most of the you, most of the hydrogen sector owes some of its heritage to universities. Not all, but most. Um, and if you look in the UK, for example, Imperial College and UCL have been absolutely fundamental to a lot of the UK tech that you see. 
whether it's Ceres Power or ITM Power or people like CPH2, most of their heritage and in some ways the core IP and learnings came from those universities. So it's very, very common, um, I think. And some countries are much better at taking that, commercializing it and spinning it up than others. And I think, you know, Biotech is a great example in the US of how that's been done. I think the Europeans haven't historically been quite as good as the Americans maybe at some of this. Certainly the Brits haven't been very good, frankly. In many cases, we're quite good at getting the IP, but then if we don't license it, we tend to not be very good at manufacturing it. That's your sort of your last question you asked. I mean, going back a step, I think PEM may not be the final frontier, but I think that's kind of a distraction. In the same way as lithium-ion battery is not the final frontier of battery, the fact is you need a very good solid battery technology that works, is well understood, is uh, something that could be mass manufactured to bring down costs and that provides enough of a basis for insurers, regulators, banks, and end users to get comfortable with the basic premise of a battery technology first, and then you then you can move on to the next technologies. I think PEM is going to be, you know, with Alkaline, um, that you know first frontier that we just need to clear for everyone to get comfortable with hydrogen technology, and then we will start to see scaling up of other technologies down the line. And People shouldn't underestimate how difficult it is to move through this technology progression side. I think PEM for at least 10 years, maybe even 15, is still going to be the predominant you know, new electrolysis technology after alkaline, just because it's relatively simple. And so I think, and there's already been a lot of work around it. And as others have pointed out, in electrochemistry, you're sharing a lot of IP and heritage. And the most popular fuel cell technology is a PEM-based fuel cell technology. So a lot of the scaling and learnings and supply chains that are benefiting the PEM fuel cell side will benefit the PEM electrolyzer side. And that's just a competitive advantage that that sector is going to have over, say, anion exchange membrane or solid oxide or uh, non-membrane-based technologies like CPH2. So and people shouldn't underestimate how big an advantage that is going to be. My final comment on this, though, is that what we have seen is a lot of people taking what is really good basic uh, cell IP and really good R&D around that and then getting complacent about the challenges of actually integrating that into large stacks. And this is partly, and I blame the market entirely for this, I think developers and investors have been reckless here, is that they're pushing these guys to go straight to gigawatt and five gigawatt products in the next year, two years, because people are trying to build 20 gigawatt projects by 25, right? And if you're trying to do that sort of stuff, I think what then ends up happening is that their manufacturers don't spend enough time on really getting that core IP down and building really efficient, reliable systems at, you know, a one megawatt scale first, then getting the five megawatt scale right, and then getting the 10 megawatt scale. And instead, people are trying to go too big, too fast without getting around all the system integration challenges of these larger stacks, which are quite significant. And that is causing problems. So that's, I think, just a general industry-wide observation I would make. And uh, I don't necessarily know how much better Highstar has been at that than others. But just getting one megawatt units out in the field like they have is really important. And having partners like Equinor involved on some of those will help. But that's that's just a general comment I would make. Absolutely. No, I think that's a fair point. Patrick, it's something we deal with or we have been thinking about here in the U.S. side of things, right? What do you think about what, what Chris is saying there, which I think is a really interesting point around the IRA and the hydrogen PTC and, and the hydrogen hubs program in the United States is really targeting, particularly the hydrogen hubs program is targeting 
the rollout of some really massive centralized production facilities, be they electrolytic from hydrogen, uh, from renewable energy, from from nuclear or biogas project. What what do you think about taking that approach of funding these sort of massive uh, centralized projects as opposed to what Chris is pointing to, which is kind of a slower scaling up over time? Uh, it's, it's one of those those kind of fundamental challenges that inevitably emerges when a market market is still in an early phase of deployment, right? Like when do you scale? How much can you scale by? How can you integrate the systems? And the systems integration piece is really, really, it's, it's a big, big part of the challenge, right? But I suppose we've seen multi-megawatt stack systems now being being deployed. Is there capacity to reach gigawatt scale projects? That I think I think there's enough people looking at this, working on this, and deploying or attempting to deploy that these problems are starting to be identified, and that that integrated process is being kind of engaged. So. To say that we're building the first in generation systems for sure, but we said that also for the last three years or four years about every project that's been built, right? So the biggest and the best. So now the question is where the the kind of ceilings are and what their constraints that emerge are as we get to much larger scale systems. So it's it's part of the natural learning process in a, in a project development cycle, I would say. Alicia, you you build these sort of projects. Maybe we should should ask the person who's actually going doing this rather than me waxing lyrical about theoreticals. Well. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about High Pilot, which is this uh, program they're doing with Yara, Equinor, Innova, and uh, they're basically, I mean, what is the lifetime of a normal uh, PEM electrolyzer? Like 60 to 90,000 hours, maybe 10 years. And they've got a model which is more efficient because it has a smaller or thinner membrane. I just wonder, this, this pilot is going to test about 10,000 of those hours. And I wonder if we're going to find out if this technology requires a lot more operational cost um, because you're constantly changing the membrane and, and replacing it because that, that would be the weak spot anyway, and, and it's actually slimmer. So that's one question. But then how do you compare this to a technology that's not PEM exactly, where they've essentially removed the membrane entirely, but they still have the same number of hours uh, recording its performance? I mean, is it just being PEM? Does that make it uh, an old technology? Does that make it more bankable? Or is it really the number of hours that it's used and, and what happens to its performance and what are the costs associated? I'm just wondering if, if we're starting basically from scratch with everyone, why would we lean towards, I mean, what would make Alkaline more bankable for at large sizes or PEM more bankable exactly as we know it at large sizes than a new technology at large sizes. And they all have to scale. And if scale is the the Achilles heel of any of them, then it, it really, it doesn't make a difference whether it's been around 50 years or not. It, it's which, which one can scale. So I really think that the, the reason I mentioned this is not because I don't think they'll succeed because I think we need lots of different types of electrolyzers and it's, it's good that there's variation. But I do think that we will see lots of different technologies deployed and we won't have people just uh, banking PEM or alkaline because I think they realize, you know, until the actual product with its good features is tested, you won't find out what bad features might come along with the the new design. So I I put that out there. But um, I think so for us, if we see a technology that seems to be 
extremely efficient and it may it's slightly different or it's different than what we're used to i think we'd like to scale that rather than than scale up something that's marginally better because uh, either way either way you have to scale i don't know how to get out of that circle maybe somebody has an idea and I, and i think it, it begs question something chris was talking about earlier so talking about fundraising in private markets right now in the hydrogen space so we've talked about how government's going to get involved I think it's fair to say that I saw an article, uh, I think it was PitchBook the other day, that said that in 2022, VCs put the largest amount into hydrogen technologies of any sort of uh, renewable energy uh, investments in the United States market, at least. But I think that also comes with the the corollary that we may see a transition, maybe a slowdown in hydrogen investment from private markets in 2023. I don't know. But I, I, I asked that question to Chris as someone who's just finished a funding round. How are private markets approaching hydrogen going into 2023? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, maybe just also separating out, there is a nuance here between equipment manufacturers and then commercialization opportunities. And some businesses blur the distinction, but there is a but there is quite separate attitudes to this, I would say. So in general, I think the equipment manufacturing side of the market is having a bit of a, uh, I think there's a bit of a regrouping from the investor community. The investor community has deployed a huge amount of capital into that space in the last 24 months. And there's a bit of waiting to see what happens. Um, There is also, I think, a realization, which is, by the way, completely natural, happens in every startup industry. But there is also a realization that some things are harder than people realize, frankly. And they've been exacerbated by supply chain issues in the war in Ukraine. But scaling up is hard. Um, And so some people are just hitting the buffers of that. And I think there's more of a focus now on a lot of these companies to just demonstrate they can get products that are working in the field well and that they are you know, generating solid sales as opposed to shoot for the moon. And I think this central tension at the heart of the clean energy transition is what's impacting all the fundraising, right? Which is that customers and government and the public are telling startup CEOs or even established, frankly, CEOs, shoot for the moon. Because we have to, because the challenge is so enormous and the time frame is so short that you have to be unbelievably ambitious and aggressive to make any kind of impact. And investors are sitting on the other side going, hell no, <laughs> don't do that. That's a disaster. Focus on getting a few projects built or selling a few of your systems and proving it works and proving the margin and then come back to us and we'll shoot for the moon. And that tension is at the heart of the clean energy transition crisis, right? And there was a bit of euphoria and a bit of government um, energy created by a lot of these big subsidies, a lot of EU announcements, a lot of US announcements that kind of pushed investors out of their comfort zone, especially in an ultra low interest rate environment and an ultra low inflationary environment, where they said, well, Pardon my language. Fuck! They've got to. We've got to do something. We've got to take more risk than we're comfortable with. I'm gonna to have to put the explicit material warning on this episode when we post this one, Chris. Damn it! Oh well, if you're doing that, fuck, fuck, <laughs> fuck, fuck, fuck. Um, but you know, but once, but so, so I think that then is kind of you know that was the market, and I think the inflationary change has meant that that tension now has swung back the other way, which is now investors going, actually, no, I'm sorry, I don't want you to shoot for the moon. I want you to be really layered. I want to be really clear on how you're going to evolve. And so the equipment side, I think that is just tough. 
because there's so many variables and questions about how that's playing out. And a lot of them are still in this big scaling phase and they're building this mass manufacturing sites. They haven't tried them yet. There's all these government competitions that could be delayed. If they're delayed, that's extremely sensitive to the pipeline. And there've been some problems with deliveries, right? ITM have been absolutely hammered for this. They've had all sorts of delay and delivery issues as have a lot of the listed electrolyzer guys. So that's the equipment side. I think commercialization companies slightly different because I think if you've got a project, the project has an offtake contract. It's an NPV of cash flows. It's inflation linked against assets. People take a different view. There, the pressure is more how real is the project? How close are you actually to getting financing? And then as a platform, effectively, how good is the business at actually being able to consistently deliver and deploy these projects? And so it's still not an easy market. It's just different, though. It's not as... There's a different set of dynamics going on in the way that investors are approaching that side than I would say the product. And then there's a geographical nuance here too. You know, I think Europe is just in a really tough place, frankly speaking, whereas I think the US is go, go, go. And I think Asia is mixed depending on where you go. Um, so Alicia may tell me or tell us we're talking, I'm talking total shit. So in which case, great, do, but that would be my sentiment. <laughs> Well, Alicia, I'm going to do the same thing I did to Chris and let you jump in and answer Chris's question. But I also wanted to, you know, Chris touched on something in his answer that we all kind of always touch on around how dangerous is it for companies who are out there in the hydrogen space who are taking private investor money, uh, rightfully so, how dangerous are the supply chain challenges for those companies in terms of getting back to the benchmarks that investors are setting around funding, right? Does that make sense? And are investors recalibrating around that? Or do some of these companies need to have a chat with their board of directors? Let's put it that way. <laughs> I think that um, if, if you're a large project, it's easier to get a, a supplier relationship because, you know, they'll build a dedicated facility uh, to fill your order book and you help them to scale along with your project. If you have a smaller project, it's harder to... It's harder for them to get the financing because they have to sort of patch together all of these different, they're building on spec, essentially, you know, to, to, as an analogy. Um, so it's harder for them. Um, and they've got to sort of build as the orders come in, as opposed to knowing they can do a much more efficient one uh, facility build for one customer that wants one type of product or a suite of products. So I, I do think it's different whoever's asking for it, but very small entities, I think, will have a lot of trouble getting um, some of these supply chain items. And the lesser known they are or the lesser known their investors are, I think the more difficult it will be. So I, I do think it, it makes sense to partner with or to um, you know build relationships with who's going to be your supplier to make sure that everything gets funded. So you sort of need to go after your offtake and then they need to go after their offtake, which is you, and you're only as good as your offtake. So um, it all sort of rolls down. And and I think that that's generally what people are going to do with, with what they have. One thing I was thinking of, I don't know if you, you guys have any awareness of this, but in the biotech industry, you know, you, you in the R&D, you always you design a drug and then it always goes to a scale-up facility because making a small batch is so different from making it in large quantities. And there's a company called Lanza that does a lot of this scale-up. And 
I think Linda actually does some scale up on the gasless side. I just wonder if there are any companies out there that are well um, are renowned and, and, and well respected for helping others sort of scale up. And it, it's not really a chemistry question here. It's more of I think I think the savings are going to be a lot on the um, on the automation and, and how you automate the facilities for making these products. That, that that's going to be a lot of the scale up advantage. But also, I, I think you're going to run into typical things that happen when you have large amounts of anything versus small. And I just wonder, are there any companies out there that would be good partners for scale up? And that would be a way for a smaller company to give their investors a little bit more comfort. Can I just jump in with a, a question here, Alicia, that I've had? Sorry, Andrew, I know you're, you're, you're doing a great job for, for, for keeping us in order. And uh, But just, Alicia, one for you and, and Patrick also, and Andrew, like both of your thoughts on this, given the US context, um, yeah, and actually Andrew, especially given the biotech context on this. My, my question with the big project side is, I, I completely understand that from a equipment manufacturing side, there's an element that goes... This is great because, you know, if I, uh, if I am the partner for ICE on one of your projects, that's like the next, I don't know, 10 to 15 years of a, you know, of probably an entire factory or several factories pipeline all locked up, right? And that gives me loads of confidence in my investors and supply chain, loads of confidence that I have lots of demand I'm going to build up over time. So at that side, I totally buy and I get. However, <laughs> your time to FID is massive and of course the big question then is well if you don't get fid and i'm an equipment manufacturer that spent a lot of time investing in a relationship with you on that project and building that up and getting comfortable with it if that project is is delayed by a year or two years which you know from a mega project side is not that uncommon and from the developer side is probably something that can be absorbed that can be pretty critical for an early stage equipment manufacturer you know, versus you're right, you know, the smaller projects, maybe it's harder to figure out which ones are real and which ones are not. But at least you're more likely in aggregate to be confident you're going to get at least one or two orders if you've got 30 people coming through in a certain time span. I mean, you must have these conversations. How do they play out? I'd just be interested in your thoughts on that. Well, I, I think, you know, maybe you have one of these companies that will build a dedicated facility for several different projects. So that's how they create their diversification. You know, they they already get an advantage because they're located right next to the projects. You have some cost savings on that basis. And they feel that if they have a voice while you're building out the project, it also has a better chance of moving forward appropriately and, and on time. Um, I mean, the more coordinated you are with your suppliers and just everyone who impacts the project, the, the better the chances of the project actually moving forward um, as expected or, or better than expected even. So I, I think a lot of these companies would like to be in, in the beginning, before you start, before FID, before you, you start actually, um, you know, building out the project, because they, I think they feel that they will get a higher value to be a bigger margin there if they jump in earlier. Plus, as you say, they will have this 10 to 15 years of guaranteed sort of work, which probably means constant work, really, because you're going to repower and have all of the operations management along the way as well. So uh, for them, they can, they can even start supplying to other projects that are nearby because most projects' locations will have good projects nearby. I, I think they would want to diversify, as you say, but maybe they would diversify by having several um, large dedicated facilities and obviously have to get them somehow financed 
somehow more similarly to how a project is financed. I think that's, that's an excellent answer to one, one of the many complicated questions we're trying to get to here, guys. I think, unfortunately, though, we're going to have to wrap there and continue that conversation on the next episode. I think we're running up against time, guys. So thanks so much. This is an excellent, excellent interview, excellent conversation, and we'll see you all next time. And that does it for us here today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Alejandro Oyarse Barnett, Chief Technology Officer and Co-Founder at Highstar, for speaking with us on the show today. And thank you, as always, to Alicia, Patrick, and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Till then, all the best from the team here at Everything About Hydrogen. Hydrogen.